Well, it's great to be back with you all. I know it's been a handful of weeks, but I told my wife, uh, man, I miss those generation folks. So I'm, I've, uh, I'm really glad to be here. Two things I want to mention before we get started too much into the teaching. I apologize. I've got a little bit of a head cold here. So I sound like I'm speaking into a tin can. So I sound worse than I feel, I promise. So I apologize if that's a bit of a distraction. And second of all, um, I think we need to just pause and, and pray for your, your pastor. I mean, like, how can you hate on fall, dude? I mean, gee whiz. I mean, it's like October's my favorite month, you know? Like, pray for his soul. I mean, how come you got to be a hater? So, anyway, so I'm excited that you all are in this series called Breathe, even as I struggle to breathe this week with my head cold. It was interesting preparing of saying we don't often think about how important breathing is until we struggle to do it. And so um, I, the Lord's really worked in me this week of physically as I've been preparing for this time with you all. And uh, so I want to invite us to do something here for a moment before we jump in. Would you just open your hands up on your lap, palms up, and uh, let's pray. But I'm not going to say very much. I simply want us to think about our breathing. All right. And these are called breath prayers. Where we can just breathe in and breathe out. And some of you say, man, this is a little weird. This feels a little hocus pocus to me. Um, it's, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's just a way that we can receive and breathe, even if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, even if this is different for you. That's okay. And so just, uh, just hold your palms up and uh, just think about your own breathing right now. Just take in a deep breath. And then exhale as much as you can. Now breathe in gratitude for those things already this morning that God has been gracious to us about. And breathe out fear and anxiety and worry. Breathe out distractions. Breathe in anticipation and expectation. And breathe out um, maybe some frustrating situations at work or at home. And breathe in joy. And breathe out a prayer of confession. Just asking God to forgive you for those things you've done in the last few days or even this morning that have, have uh, broken his heart. Lord, you de you've designed our bodies so that we can't just take one big gulp of air that will keep us alive for a week. We, we need air constantly, every minute of every day of every year of our lives. And may that be the reminder that we can't exist one minute of one day of every year of our lives without your involvement. We can't store up air and have it sustain us. We constantly need to depend upon you. And so, Lord, as we look at this idea of breathing and the rhythms that you've engaged in through your son Jesus and for us to engage in too. I, I pray that we would think about it and it would become even as natural as breathing. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.
Amen. So I know this series on, on breathing, on, on breathe, is uh, looking at different spiritual practices, even the practices that Jesus himself practiced, which is interesting that Jesus practiced practices even though he was the Son of God. Why would someone who's completely perfect need to enter into practices? You ever think about that? He had it all together. If he never sinned, why practice this? Well, in many ways, he was still human, but at the same time, in many ways, he wants to model for us how we live. So I want to start with just two questions here this morning. Uh, If I were to ask you all, do you trust God with your life? I think many of us in this room would answer yes. But if I were to ask you, do you trust God with your week? We may have to pause before we answer that. See, how you spend your days reveals what we care about and what we believe or what we don't believe. And what we do says something about us, but what we purposefully choose to do says a great deal about us. So we live in this fast-paced culture, of course, that honors the treadmill being turned up higher and faster with each passing day. We admire those that get it done, right? They just crank through a list. They get it done. As Americans, we have this adversarial relationship with time. Uh, We've made an idol out of exhaustion. We've made a badge out of busyness. How are you? Oh, I'm busy, you know? We say that with just, we brag about it. I'm busy because we think, if I'm not busy, if I'm bored, I may not be that important. I mean, this is a huge problem in America. I mean, we're the only country in the world to name a national landmark Mount Rushmore, you know? (laughs) If you think about that. In many ways, this is why the practice of something called Sabbath-keeping is so important for us to look at this morning. You know, Sabbath is the holy time where we can breathe in a culture that says there's too much to do, you have no time to breathe. And so we're going to look at this. And so I, I don't want to assume one way or another, so let me just start. What is Sabbath? Maybe you've heard that word before or it feels like an archaic term. What is Sabbath? Sabbath is the faith-filled rhythm of working for six days and resting, stopping, ceasing for one whole day. Six and one, six and one, six and one. Now, where did that come from? Where did that come from? It comes right from the creation account in the book of Genesis. Genesis, of course, meaning beginning, right from the very beginning of the Bible and right from the beginning of time. And God had finished creating the world in six days. And I want to look at this in Genesis chapter 3. This is what, or sorry, Genesis chapter 2. This is what it says in the first three, chap- three verses, excuse me. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, did you notice here the three acts of what God actually did? He said he rested, he blessed it, and he made it holy. He rested, he blessed it, he made it holy. The God of the universe who has no limitations, who is the all-powerful, rested. He did not do this because he said, man, after, after creating the whole world, oh, I'm exhausted. Right? He's not worn out. This was not a utilitarian, I just need a day to recoup. I need a day to rejuvenate. He did it as a way to model how creation was to operate. 
including humans, including us. And then it says, and he blessed it. God blesses people, but he also blesses things. He blessed creation. And it says, and then he made it holy. Now remember, holy means separate, different, distinct, or set apart. Okay? It doesn't mean that we act all righteous, you know? It doesn't mean we walk around and say, holy, right? There's people that make the word holy into a three-syllable word, right? It's not to be <laughs> pretentious. It's not to be condescending and arrogant. It just means different from everything else. So God, who is without sin, we who have all sinned, therefore he is different, distinct, set apart, Okay? And so the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, doesn't mean you sit around and read your Bible for 10 hours a day. It means it's different, clearly delineated from the other six days of your week. What's interesting is there is no reference in the record of Genesis of the creation story of any person or object that God makes something holy other than a day. It's the only thing. He says the day will be holy. I'm holy and the day will be holy. So what does God do right after he finishes creating the world? He rests. He blesses the day. He makes it separate, distinct, set apart, unique, holy. We Sabbath because God kept the Sabbath and set an example for creation. But it's also because God built into the DNA of creation, the DNA of us, that resting and ceasing is important, and it's something that creation needs in order to flourish. In 1793, in an effort to increase human productivity in France, the government actually made a decision to change the Christian calendar by modifying the seven-day week calendar to a 10-day week calendar. Clock clock inventors actually made new clocks and calendars in order to reflect this revised calendar, this revised week. And the experiment, however, failed miserably. Suicide rates skyrocketed, people burned out, and production decreased significantly. See, it turns out that, that humans were actually made not to work nine days and rest one in a given week, We were made to work six days and rest one. The seven-day rhythm is sacred. The seven-day week is not the result of human ingenuity. It is a reflection of God's divine design that he's placed in each one of us. It's important for us to note, as a good Jew, that Jesus observed Sabbath. But imagine this. Being fully God and fully man, he did get tired, and he did need sleep. He needed rest. And we actually see that throughout Scripture, right? you got to be exhausted if there's a storm where experienced fishermen think they're going to die and you're sawing logs. God rested, and God invites us to rest. And if that's the case, then I need to ask a question. If God rested and God invites us to rest, are we stronger or wiser or better than God? I don't know what it was, but my sophomore year of college, I had gone on uh, Christmas break and interterm. We had an interterm uh, break, and then I came back, and I don't know what it was. I know I was wrestling with this or whatever. I, I realized it was important for me to take this idea of Sabbath seriously. Now, my full-time job was actually being a student, right, homework, right? So that was my work. So I thought, what would it look like 
if on Sundays I actually just didn't study, didn't write any papers, didn't do anything. I said, I'm just going to try and experiment and try to trust God with my schedule as a college student, a sophomore in college, and just see what happens. I was a fairly good student. I said, let's just see what happens. And I found that it just totally revolutionized the way I lived my life to the point that now I still do that. No matter how busy life gets, I still do that. It was really cool because, well, there were sacrifices along the way, though. That sometimes meant Friday night I had to be in the library while everyone else was out having fun. Sometimes it meant Sunday night going to bed early because I had a Monday test and I'd get up early and look over my notes before I went into the test. But I'll tell you, it was wonderful on a Sunday. I'd go to church, I'd hang out, and sometimes people around me would say, hey, you're college students, why don't you just come over for lunch? We'd love to have you for lunch. And all my friends would say, ah, i got to write a paper. i got too, I got too much going on. And i go, sure. Or I'd go home and put on some sweats and a hoodie and um, say, you know what? I, let me go watch some football. <laughs> you know what? Let me take a nap. A friend stops by my room and says, let's hang out. Or i got something heavy. Can I talk to you? I go, sure. It was amazing how God met me in that and allowed me to flourish. And my grades got better. I'm not saying because of that, but I think because I was able to just rest and not be so stressed out and worried and distracted. And by trusting God with my schedule, good things happen. My junior year, I then had a chance to study in Israel. You know, I've talked about this, and I've showed you some slides from my time in Israel. What's interesting is that in the mind of a Jew, so Sabbath is on a Saturday, which means from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night, the whole country shuts down. The buses shut down. The stores shut down. The cars stop driving on the road. And Friday night, there's just a... It falls all over Jerusalem. It was awesome. Friday night Shabbat meal, the Sabbath meal, we'd engage in together. They would invite us in and let us participate and observe with them. I miss that. I miss that. So why Sabbath? You may say, okay, that's Sabbath. That's interesting. But why? Why is that important? Well, a few things. First of all, it's a little bit startling for us to realize, but it's very clear. Sabbath is a command. <laughs> it's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's not a way to life hack uh, to better productivity. It's actually a command. God knows that our bodies and souls cannot sustain such long-term, high-paced, always-on, work-drunk reality. And he knows this because he created us and because he loves us, so he commanded his people to live differently than everyone else around them. And in Exodus 20, we actually see the Ten Commandments. And of all the commandments, the commandment about Sabbath is actually given the most amount of airtime than any of the ten. There is more ink spilled in describing the commandment about the Sabbath than any of the ten. This is what it says in Exodus 20. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor male or female servant, or your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that was in them. But he rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There it is again. God rested. He blessed it. He made it holy. And God commands us on the Sabbath to remember it and to observe it. 
You can't observe it unless you remember it. See, when I've taught on this concept of the Sabbath in the past, people always come up to me afterwards, and they'll say something like this. I mean, come on. Keeping the Sabbath, I mean, that's so Old Testament. That's so ancient, right? That's under the Old Covenant. We're under Jesus now. Jesus is the new covenant, right? And so that doesn't apply to us anymore. We don't have to do that, right? Can you imagine us doing that with the other nine commandments? You shall not murder? Oh, dude, that's so old school. Like, that's so, like, ancient times, man. Come on. You shall not steal? Oh, come on, dude, don't be so legalistic. You shall not lie? Don't worry about it. It's actually an archaic way to live thousands of years ago. You can lie now. We're in a progressive culture. So why do we do that with the Sabbath command? When I've taught on this before, I can be a little bit mischievous. I, I almost titled this morning, Nine Commandments and One Suggestion. <laughs> in fact, in our workaholic world we live in, the Sabbath commandment is the only one we brag about not keeping. So it's a command. But more than a command, it's also a gift. I don't want us to think, think so legalistically about this. Do this. Shame on you if you don't. It's a gift that God, the gracious Father we have, gives to us. Sometimes we think Sabbath day is, a design, is designed to take away all of our fun. It's not. I want you to think about this. Here's a little Venn diagram. I love, next slide, I love Venn diagrams, all right? I haven't got a tattoo of a Venn diagram on my arm over here. So I, I, I love, I'm serious. I love it, all right? So if you think about this, Sabbath without work is actually laziness. If all you did was just rested all the time, you're just being lazy. If you work all the time but never rest, it's exhaustion. But God designed our bodies to actually live in such a way that when there's Sabbath and work, we're flourishing human beings. God wants you to flourish. He's designed you in your body physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, so you flourish in what you're doing. Isaiah 58 actually says that the Sabbath is a delight, a delight. It doesn't say it's useful, it's not pragmatic, it's not strategic, but delightful. And when we bring a utilitarian mindset into Sabbath, we end up bastardizing it. See, with Sabbath, yes, we rest, and the goal is to cease, but it is also to delight. So I want to ask you, what do you delight in? It's not a word we often talk about. It feels kind of an an old word, but, but there are things that every one of us experience delight in. What delights you? Now, my Latino friends, uh, they all know about delight is in throwing great parties. I mean, I grew up in Puerto Rico. Man, they had some great parties on my street growing up. My Italian friends know about delight in making and eating great food and drinking great wine. Many of my African-American friends know how to delight in good music. Many of my friends from the continent of Africa know how to delight in celebration and dancing. My Middle Eastern friends know how to delight in hospitality and sharing a meal together with friends and even strangers. Living in Philadelphia, my friends are just beginning to learn what delight looks like as we're still trying to realize we're defending Super Bowl champions. Right? There's all sorts of ways we delight. You delight in certain ways. Sabbath can be a time and a gift to be able to delight in things. You can delight. It is a gift. Peter Scazzaro said this in thinking about the Sabbath. 
He said, it's like God's gift to us of a giant snow day once a week. How cool is that, you know? We're all snowed in. All right. I'm staying in my pajamas till noon watching Netflix and uh, eating some cereal. Right? I mean, some of you just went, ah. Right? That sounds so good. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Indeed. Now, some Jewish fathers on the morning of Sabbath with this idea of delight would give their children a spoon of honey so they would always remember the sweetness of the Sabbath for the rest of their lives. Imagine if you're a little three or four or five-year-old kid. First thing you do when you wake up is dad gives you a spoonful of honey. I think that'd mark your day. My friend A.J. Swoboda writes that more critical than the gift is how we handle a gift that's given to us. Sabbath is a gift, but it's not often a gift we know how to receive in our culture. We don't always know what to do with it. In a world of doing and going and producing, we have no use for a gift that invites us to stop. But I mean, how cool is it that we get to worship the God who invented the weekend? I mean, how cool is that? Sabbath is a command, it's a gift, but it's also a rebellion against the empire. Let me say, what? What are you talking about? Now, Walter Brueggemann, in his book, uh, Sabbath as Resistance, he said that in, in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, because of their rebellion, you know, they were carried off into slavery in Egypt. And the evil Egyptian ruler, Pharaoh, demanded that these Hebrew slaves made bricks. And when Israel complained about the intensity of their workload, saying it's impossible for us to accomplish all the quota of brick-making every day as slaves. There's no way we can do it. It was too demanding that he became even more mean. He raised the quota, and he took away the straw that was to be mixed into the bricks themselves and said, you still need to make the amount of bricks. I'll take the straw away. You need to keep going. You see, in the Egyptian empire system, the amount of bricks that you made equated your identity. The empire told the nation of Israel, your level of worth and value is measured in the amount of bricks you make. You make enough bricks, we'll keep you around for a little bit longer. You don't make enough bricks, we're going to get rid of you. While in exile, in slavery in Egypt, God did not want Israel to be like Egypt. And instead, He wanted them to be different. And the clearest way to be different from the Egyptian empire was to practice Sabbath. Why? Because it was that day they were to be reminded their worth was not dependent upon the number of bricks they made, but it's that they had a God who loved them and cared for them and had worth and value in them that was not equated by their production level. See, here's the thing. When we continue to run after the rhythms and the measurements of the quota of the culture that we live in, which measures our value today not by making bricks, but by making deadlines and making quarterly projection sheets and making money, that we still live by empire values. And one of the best ways we can break from that, yes, we need to work hard. Yes, money is important but we can actually live in the value system of God by saying, I will trust God by spending one day of doing nothing. 
It's not laziness. You can blow the day off in the name of God. He invites us to do that. But to be reminded that my identity is not determined solely by the production and outcomes. My worth is determined by who I am and to whom I belong, not by what I do. One of the hats that I wear is I'm a leadership coach, and I have the privilege of serving as a leadership coach to five or six different Chick-fil-A restaurant owners in the Philadelphia area, which is really fun because, uh, man, it's like Christian chicken just tastes amazing. And, uh, and so to be able to serve in this way is amazing. So as I'm coaching these leaders, I'm learning about the Chick-fil-A culture. And as you know, you know their founder, Truett Cathy, was a, was a follower of Jesus, and he took this idea of Sabbath seriously, not just for him, but for his employees and the whole company. And I admire this deeply, but I do wonder, why is it that my deepest cravings for Chick-fil-A always happen Sunday afternoon? I mean, like, what is up with that, right? But in talking with the owners I work with, they tell me that even the restaurant equipment needs a rest one day a week. And they think about the waffle fry maker, the dishwasher, or the, the ovens. When you compare the equipment and how long it lasts compared to all the other restaurants, restaurant chains in the country, people in the industry scratch their head and go, how does your equipment last so long without breaking and needing replacing? Because they're saying we're trusting God, not just with ourselves and our employees, but even with our stuff. The Sabbath is a bold way to say to the world, your metrics of worth and measuring me by what I accomplish will not define me because Jesus defines my identity and I am a treasured son and daughter of the King. That's what Sabbath can declare to the world. So Sabbath is a command, it's a gift, it's a rebellion against the empire, but it's also a reminder. It's a weekly reminder that this is God's world and not my own. It's a reminder not to take myself so seriously. It's a reminder that my life and my body have limits, and that's a good thing and not a curse. I, I've told my wife for years now, and people say, what's your favorite? If you could have one superpower, what would it be? You know, if you want to fly around, you want to be invisible. Mine would be that I could fully operate and be healthy without any sleep. Think of all you could get done. Think of what you could do and read and accomplish, right? It just shows you my own inner, I don't know, my inner ugliness to think like, why can't I see limitation in, even in my own body as a, as a gift rather than as a curse? I need this reminder of Sabbath. You know, without rest, we begin to believe that our identity is tied up in what we do. And we then are tempted to believe that God must love me depending on how much I do for Him or get accomplished. It's a way of remembering. Sabbath is a way of remembering that if I cease from doing work, I'm acknowledging my belief that the world will not fall apart. You see, when we cease interfering in the world, we are acknowledging that this is God's world. This is God's world to run and not mine. So it's a reminder. I need that. So Sabbath is a command. It's a gift. It's a rebellion against the empire. It's a reminder, but it's also a test of faith. In the mind of a Jew, Sabbath, as I mentioned, is from sundown on Friday night to sundown Saturday night. Now you think, why this pattern? Why not in the morning, tonight, or why not from 1201 to midnight? You know, where did this come from? 
What do you mean sundown to the next day sundown? It comes right out of the creation account that we read in Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, this is where they get their day. What does it say? There was evening and morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. It doesn't say there was morning and evening, and then we went to bed, and there was a new day. So think about that. Jews find the pattern of the day right out of the pattern of Genesis. So in this case, what's the first thing, if you're a Jew and you think evening and morning is a day, what's the first thing that you do in your day? Sleep. The first thing you do in your day is nothing. (laughs) Think about that. You go to bed, new day starts, you go to bed for several hours, and then when you wake up, you don't say, like we say in America, "Ah, new day, let's tackle the day. You say, the day has already been going. This is God's day, who's been actively at work, even though I've done nothing and I've been sleeping. I now enter into His day, which has already been going on. Woo! What would that do to your mindset as you approached your work day? How might you think differently about trust and sleep and rest and Sabbath in participating in God's world, if that's how you thought? Sabbath observance is one of the most honest and practical indicators of authentic faith in God. That's why I started with, how many of you would say you, you know, put your faith in God with your life? How many of you would say you put your faith in God with your week? Andy Crouch said this. He said, there is perhaps no single thing that you could better help, that could better help us to recover Jesus' lordship in our frantic, power-hungry world than to allow him to be lord of our rest as well as our work. It is foolish for us to believe that God would give us too much to do that we're unable to spend quality time simply just being and living out a command that he gives to us. Sabbath rest is Sabbath trust. Sabbath rest is Sabbath trust. Marva Dawn, who's written on this idea of Sabbath, said, The great benefits of Sabbath is that we learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God Himself. When we learn to practice Sabbath, we're giving up the false idea that we will ever be able to earn the love of God. You can't. You can't earn God's love. And one of the ways that you're reminded of that or challenged of that is having one day every week where you do nothing. Because of the work of Jesus on a bloody cross and an empty tomb, He says to you, I'm already proud of you. I'm already proud of you. You don't have to prove anything to me. I'm already proud of you. Your worth, he says, is not determined by the amount of bricks you make or how much time you can squeeze into your average work week. Sabbath is the time where Jesus just wants to whisper in your ear, you are loved. You are loved. Don't prove yourself. I already love you. When we practice Sabbath faithfully, it begins to address the FOMO in us. You know FOMO, fear of missing out? It's a real thing. Social media is driven by FOMO. The fact you need your phone with you at all times is driven by FOMO. 
The fact that we're workaholics is often driven by FOMO. What's behind FOMO? We're worried we might fall behind, and if we do, what would that say about me? And Sabbath is a way that tries to attack. It's like Sabbath is like the immune system trying to attack the invasive virus of FOMO in our immune system. You know, I mean, that's that's what God is giving to us: FOMO and the idol of efficiency. So you say, okay, that's great. How do I do this? They're like, Jerry, you don't know my week. I'm a business owner. I'm a, I'm a parent of, a small, of small kids. Like, I get that. I mean, that's hard. I'm a business owner. I got small kids. I mean, this is hard. This is really hard. So I want to get really practical with you about this. You know, the common question is, what do I do on Sabbath? Like, do I just sit around? What do I do? But here's the better question. Who am I becoming on Sabbath? Who am I being or who am I becoming during my Sabbath time? Another question to consider would be, my work, will it be driven by fear or purpose? <laughs> Which one? Fear that I won't have enough money, fear that I won't advance in the company, fear that my coworkers are, will think I'm not competent enough or not professional enough, or will I be driven by purpose? So on a practical side, what do I do? I mean, who, who do I become? How do I spend my time? Marva Dawn uh, who wrote about Sabbath, who I just quoted, she said, Sabbath is for four things. She said, ceasing, resting, embracing, and feasting. Ceasing, resting, embracing, and feasting. We play, we feast, we rest, and we echo with God, it is good, it is good. It's a day full of gifts, not a day full of bricks. <laughs> so let me just Get real practical for you for the last few minutes here before we land the plane. Here are a couple questions, and I think I've got a slide on this. Asking yourself a few questions about Sabbath. Think about what you do. Next slide. Is this activity life-giving or life-taking? What gives me delight, as we talked about? Do these activities bring me or us life, rest, hope, wholeness? Or does it drain us, pour us out, stress us out, or weigh us down? Is this about get to or is this about have to? And what's on my to-don't list today? I love that. That's my, probably my favorite question to think practically. What's on my to-don't list? Now, some people say, I, you know, I hate working out. You know, I, sh- I do it, but I, it feels like work. I'm like, okay, don't do it then. Don't, don't do it on, on Sabbath, you know? Um, now, I love working out. So, for me, sometimes Sabbath includes working out. But you know what? I hate yard work. So, you know what I don't do on my Sabbath? I don't ever do yard work. That's for the other days of the week when I'm working. <laughs> um, but I don't do that then. That's just not how I'm wired. Okay? So, secondly, um, my friend A.J. Swoboda, who I mentioned, um, is very helpful. He's, he reminds us that Sabbath will have emergencies. Emergencies will happen on Sabbath. It happens, right? Someone gets sick, right? There's, there's an issue that, you know, I don't know, there's a, there's a flood in the basement, the sump pump doesn't work. It's like, well, I'm just going to chill out for, uh, you know. Right? There's sometimes emergencies that happen. But let me say this, not every disturbance on Sabbath is an emergency. And we need to be very careful about that. You, you may still be asking, though, yeah, but what exactly do I do? I mean, do I just sit around and twiddle my thumbs? What do I do? Well, Sabbath rhythms could include, and this is different for different people in different phases of life, even with your family, 
sleeping in, playing, praying, eating good food. Practice Sabbath with other people. There's a friend of mine who pastors a church about an hour north of me in the Bethlehem Allentown area. Uh, his church is about the size here of Generation. Afterwards, he says, um, anyone can come over to my house. And they have a few dozen people in their house on Sunday afternoons. Some are watching football. Some are eating. Some are playing card games. He'll go into the guest room over here, and some will be taking a nap on the bed. Well, okay. You know, he, he just lets people Sabbath in his home with him. It's a beautiful thing, the Sabbath together with others. Maybe you call your grandmother, write a letter, be bored. <laughs> There's a lie in our culture that tells us that boredom is bad. There is such a thing as holy boredom that can be deeply sacred and meaningful. I have a friend who, for her, it means no sticky notes, alarms, or to-do lists. Because to her, that, her mind is, oh, what's next? I'm not going to do this. And so she just says, Lord, if it's important enough, remind me tomorrow. Because I'm not going to write it down on a sticky note. Even while serving as Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice practiced Sabbath. You may think, why am I too busy? Well, I don't think there's anybody in this room that would be busier or have more important work than the Secretary of State. She would go to church. She would engage in what was life-giving for her. She'd go to church. She'd curl up on the couch after church. She'd read a good book and make sure she also watched her beloved Minnesota Vikings on TV. In fact, that's her goal. She, she actually wants to be the commissioner of the NFL one day. She loves football. And so for her, that was part of her practice, was being watching the Minnesota Vikings. Even the president, President Bush, knew that she practiced Sabbath, and unless it was an emergency, he would wait until later that night or the next morning to communicate with her so that she could Sabbath well. If one of the most powerful people in office can do that, you can do it too. Now, here's the thing. Don't live legalistically about this. Make sure you hear that, okay? Live by the principle of one every seven. For some of you, you have to work Sundays. Some of it may be Tuesday, right? When I, when I was a pastor for years, like Sunday was my big work day. I couldn't Sabbath on Sunday. That was my big work day. So Monday was my Sabbath. And I would just protect that. People say, can we meet Monday? Nope, I got something going on. How about later in the day, Monday? Nope, how about Tuesday? <laughs> And that was weird for me. But I learned I needed that. That became a gift. Experiencing the freedom of accepting a gift that God wanted to give to me. And don't be legalistic about it. Remember, Jesus practiced Sabbath, but Jesus also seemed to heal other people purposefully on the Sabbath to tick off religious leaders who took it legalistically. So Jesus has a penchant to understand we practice Sabbath to breathe but not in a legalistic way where we say, okay, I must breathe, <sighs> breathe again, right? It takes the joy out of breathing. Don't be legalistic about it. Jesus hated when, we t when others took Sabbath legalistically. I want to suggest uh, a few additional resources to you, and I know some people were taking pictures of some slides. I'm going to give you another one that may be helpful for you if you want to learn a little bit more. And so go ahead and put that, yeah, there it is, um, some really good books on, uh, on this. Some of them, uh, Mudhouse Sabbath is very short, written by a friend of mine named Lauren Winter. Um, Subversive Sabbath, I've referenced my friend AJ uh, before. 
um, the Sabbath by this rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Fantastic. Now, some of you say, I've got kids. How do I Sabbath with little kids? Like, that feels impossible. That's where at the bottom there. I want to encourage you to check out Rosie Velotis's, um blog post on this, which is really great uh, of helping families think creatively about how do you practice Sabbath with, with little, uh, little creatures that run around my house all the time. So that may be helpful for you. Now, let me end with this. This is really important. Sabbath cannot save your soul, but it very well may save your life. It will not save your soul, but it very well may save your life. Because here's the truth. If God is not in control, then you shouldn't be here. You should be home working your tail off because you're falling behind. If God is not in control, you must work harder and longer and more intensely than you do now because you are not getting ahead. But if God is who He says He is, then the fact remains you can rest once a week. You can. And it is better for you to attempt to practice Sabbath poorly than for you to never try. Imagine if you did that when you were a a little child. You know what? I tried walking once. I fell. I'm never doing that again. (laughs) Forget it. Too hard. It's better for you to practice Sabbath poorly than to never try it at all. You're going to make Sabbath mistakes. Learn from them, but seek to receive the gift that God has extended to you. And I'll end with this. I recently read a story from author and Sabbath keeper Matthew Sleeth. He said this, My children used to love curling up in the big green chair by the fireplace in winter and falling asleep listening to my heartbeat. These days my children are grown. I'm still close to them. And I hug them whenever I see them, but it's only my little granddaughter who falls asleep on my chest right now, or so I thought. Last week, my son dropped by our house after a long shift at the hospital. He flopped on the couch next to me, and within a few minutes, he was asleep, his head resting on me. He was no longer the pediatrician at the university hospital. He was just a little boy resting in his father's arms. Starting next Sabbath, for 24 hours, you have an invitation to lay your head on the chest of someone who loves you enough to die for you. It's an invitation to rest in the Lord, and in doing so, it's an invitation to breathe. Let's pray. Lord, we started by breathing, and now we're still breathing. (laughs) We're still alive because we haven't even been thinking about the last several minutes, but that's what sustained us and kept us alive. Lord, Sabbath is hard to preach on because it sounds legalistic and so old school and In no way, Lord, do I I want to bring about shame to my friends here or guilt that we're not doing it well, but to see it as a way to honor you, 
to see how your son Jesus, who didn't need to, and yet he chose to enter into that. Thank you for modeling for us, even though you didn't need to, but you entered into that and modeled for creation what it means to work hard and to rest, to work hard and rest. To be reminded that what we do and how well we do it does not give us worth and value and identity in our lives. It's knowing that we can curl up on the couch and lay our head on the chest of the one who loved us so much that he died for us. That's what you invite us into. Lord, we're tired and we're stressed out and we're distracted and we have too much going on. And we say, how could I ever do that? Lord, the more we say that, maybe the more we're just needing to hear our own words come out of our mouths to say, if there's ever a time for me to Sabbath, it's now. Not to get ahead, not to be more productive, not to be anything other than wanting to trust you, to know you, to be in relationship with you. So, Father, help us not to just trust you with our lives. Help us to trust you with our week. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. As we end, can you just, would you stand? And would you receive the benediction as we go? You've heard me say before that the benediction is two Latin words squished together. Bene, where we get beneficial, meaning good. And dictus, where we get dictionary, word. So it's the good word, the good saying. It's a charge. It's an encouragement. It's a, if you fell asleep the last 30 minutes, let me summarize it in 30 seconds. And it isn't just that we've come together to hear a nice thing and went home, but that I charge you, I challenge you to live this out as you go into your week. So would you look at me and receive the benediction? Brothers and sisters of Generation Church, go. And as you go, would you remember that Sabbath is not to take away your joy. It's actually to give you more of it. Would you go knowing that the God of the universe modeled that for us so you can enter into that? He's wired that into your DNA. Live into the DNA of the God who's given you that. And rest. No, it's a gift. Don't do it legalistically. Enter into that challenge to be reminded this is God's world and not yours. And your world will not fall apart one day a week. God is not a cruel God like that. If He invites you to enter into something like rest, that you can do it and you can trust Him to see your world will not fall apart. Enter into that so you can breathe more fully. God bless and bless God. Amen. Have a great week.